Let's read um, teachings of Jesus. This is Matthew chapter five, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow money from you. This is an enormously challenging passage for us to learn from. Uh, not because Jesus is hard to understand. Uh, Jesus' words here are pretty clear, um, and pretty simple, and there's nuance 100% with some of the cultural language he's using and the illustrations he's giving, but there's not that much that needs to be explained. His teaching is challenging because though we can understand it, our hearts want nothing to do with it. So our plan for today, before we get into any of the details of, of what was Jesus teaching, what was he not teaching, our plan is just to pause and like let our hearts awaken again to the good news of Christ, the true story of the world, the gospel. It's because this story, it rewrites the narrative of our lives. The gospel, this story is the thing that motivates us to approach the world differently in unexpected ways. So after we've kind of rooted our hearts in the gospel, then we'll look more closely at the words of Jesus. Uh, he gives one command, four examples. Uh, and then finally, we'll conclude by asking like, how? How do I do this? This is terrifying. So um, this teaching, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. All of what he is saying those responses to the world only make sense if something deeply drastic has changed. Those responses don't make sense unless something has changed about the world as we know it. And it has. The king has come. That is the true story of the world. We are reading the gospel according to Matthew. That means the good news according to Matthew. Today is our 25th week Today, the 25th week in the Gospel of Matthew. Today is the 15th uh, week studying the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been rooted in the teachings of Jesus. And because we're, we've spent so much time in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's beginning to feel like we're focusing very much on the ethics, the behaviors of God's kingdom. And that's not wrong, but I find in my own heart, I'm beginning to forget. I'm forgetting the big picture, the big picture good news. And so when you remember the book, first and foremost, the gospel of Matthew is good news. It is not only a behavior. It does describe how we follow him, how we live under his good reign. But remember, it, does not, it is not our to-do list to earn grace. So the good news, the good news, big picture, first and foremost, is that God has chosen to love his creation. That's what Genesis tells us. It was good. He's chosen to love it. And then he chose to gather real-life human beings into a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people for his own possession. He chose to gather people to him. He's chosen to be loyal when we are unfaithful. He's chosen to pursue us when we run away and actively hide. 
So the true story is every day, you and I wake up under the loving gaze of God. Regardless of if we feel it or think we earn it or deserve it, we wake up under the loving gaze of God because Jesus has ransomed us. He has already paid for us. And so in Matthew, in the context of Matthew, Matthew picks up with the the genealogy, um, which is kind of the ongoing promised narrative of Christ. God says, there will be a king that comes. And then Matthew picks up in that genealogy and says, look, that story that you thought was left behind, it was here and here and here, and we're continuing now. And then Matthew chapter two comes in and the story tells us that the king, his name is Jesus, which means God saves. And that king, he's here right now. He has arrived. In chapter three, this new promised king, the spirit of God comes from heaven and sits on his shoulders and, and heaven proclaims, this is my son. This is my son, he has arrived. In chapter four, the very first thing this new king does is he goes face to face, toe to toe with the devil. The source of all of our nightmares, all of our unspoken fears. The promised king goes face to face with the adversary and he wins. And our hearts begin to wonder as I read this story, is it possible? Like, is there hope in this story? if the king has come and he actually has faced death, like he's faced evil and like square in the face and walked away victorious, maybe there is hope. And then this king turns to the world and he says, the kingdom is here, follow me. Everything is different. Everything is different, follow me. And then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, what we're in right now. And he begins to say, because everything's different, here's what my kingdom looks like. It looks like people being crazy generous, crazy self-giving, crazy devoted. That's what it looks like. And he continues to describe who you and I are becoming, what it looks like when human beings are rooted in the kingdom of God. And then much of Matthew chapters 10 through 26 is Jesus, this king, living up to his word, being consistent with everything he's promised about his identity, what he will do, who he is towards you and I. He is being consistent. And he displays his power and his compassion through miracles, through teaching, through the literal healing of broken bodies and broken spirits. But he's here for more than physical healing. And this is where chapter 26, where he fulfills his great promise, where he fulfills the plan. This is where he takes on the consequence that was required of you and I. He meets that consequence in himself, literal body and blood. So through baptism, all followers of this promised king, you and I, we've died. We've died with him. In a true spiritual sense, we've died. We've died to the consequence of sin. We've died to the flesh within us that rebels and hides from this king. We've died to slavery. And now daily, we're beginning to work out this new life because Matthew's final chapter does not end in death. Matthew's final chapter ends in resurrection where this promised king who has come, everything is different. This promised king kills death. So that means you and I, as we um, participate with him in baptism, this death of our flesh, we also receive life in him. So you and I daily walk out new life. We begin living in Christ. 
We begin living for Christ, living as Christ did. We live with him side by side. Flesh that is in me has died, but now I live in Christ. So this true story, again, changes everything. Things that never made sense before now are the only rational response to a broken world. Because our lives are no longer lived with me on the throne, but now the king, the good king, the compassionate king, he is on the throne of my life. So his teaching here, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, his teaching only makes sense if something significantly drastic has changed. But it has. The king has come. He's died for us. We've died with him. and We have new life in him. So, are you ready? Are you ready to look at this teaching that is terrifying? It is conscience squirming. But are you ready to look at it with a new heart? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So now we're going to look at like, what is Jesus actually teaching? There's lots of kind of cultural wrapping around it. So we're going to look at what is he saying? What is he not saying? Okay, so he begins with saying, you've heard it said of old, you've heard it said in the past, but I say to you now. Um, and so this, this teaching of an eye for an eye, uh, this is from Mosaic legislation, similar to much of what Jesus has been teaching on. And it is first written or recorded in, in our scriptures in Exodus and Exodus was written as Israel was beginning its independent nationhood. So before this point in time, Israel had only existed either under the rule of foreign nations or as these loose pockets of like tribal families. But now Israel is being gathered under God as an independent nation, under the sovereignty of God. So there's new law that's being written in Exodus. So that's where it's first written. It's also recorded in Leviticus, which is also a book of law, as well as Deuteronomy. Um, and so I'd like to read this really quick. It'll be up on the screen. This is Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17 and 22. So this is the original teaching that Jesus is pointing to. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So this is a form of justice that at first glance sounds violent and like barbaric, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture. But consider what it's saying. Eye, eye, tooth, tooth. It's calling for fair and equitable justice. It functioned as a way of limiting the violence and limiting revenge that was allowed within a community. It didn't require retribution when there was wrongdoing, but it did prevent over-retaliation. You can't go eye-head, eye-life. It's eye-eye, tooth-tooth. 
But something that it also did is, this is in legislation, right? This is being written and carried out through a court of elders or a legal system. So um, this instruction was not encouraging individuals who've been wronged, individuals who are high on anger and emotion. It's not saying like, go get your tooth. You've been wronged. Like, go get your eye for an eye. Any system like that historically has always led to escalating violence and hatred, even to the point of ongoing murder and blood feuds, even war. And that, that escalation, right? I, I, like all of a sudden we're murdering people. <laughs> that, that escalation sounds uh, kind of hard to believe, a bit extreme, but consider the evidence of your own life. As I've considered my own heart, I know that if someone slaps me, what do I do? When people have slapped me in the past, I do not consider, hmm, what is an equitable consequence? He has slapped me, I shall slap him back, and then we're fair. No, someone slaps me, and I'm fists out, I'm like, I'm in that fight. That fight's gone from a slap to revenge. Now I'm beating the pulp out of somebody, now what happens? That person's buddies see what's going on, and now I'm on the floor getting beat up, so now I'm mad, so I go get my buddies and my family, and we're back at it, right? And so you can see there's, like, our hearts don't go towards justice. Our hearts go towards revenge. Our hearts go towards getting more. You did this to me, I want more. So we naturally escalate. So Jesus, as he's referencing this law, what he is saying is, wrong has been done to you eye for eye, tooth for tooth, there is fair recompense. You can pursue fair recompense through the law and that would be just. But I say to you, there's something greater than tit for tat justice. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So when Jesus says the one who is evil, that word evil is actually a bit ambiguous. Um, it's not entirely sure. Is he talking about like a singular person who's evil? Is he talking about like evil as a concept? Um, and, but there's, there's some literary clues that help us really concretely know exactly what he's saying. And that's this. Um, first off, he gives four examples of person-on-person -person evil or person-on-person -person interactions. So it's pretty clear that he's speaking of an evil person. Not evil as an abstract, evil as an idea, evil as a spiritual force. He's talking about evil humans or humans who are doing evil. Um, something else that helps us understand that conclusion is other writings within the New Testament. Um, I want to point out uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, there's this active call where uh, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil or the evil one, he prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Uh, Ephesians chapter six, many of us are familiar with the, the armor of God in Ephesians. Uh, Paul writes this, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand or resist the schemes of the devil or the evil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so both of those New Testament um, exhortations stand, resist 
evil, evil spiritual forces, the adversary, um, that's very, very clear. And so Jesus here is not contradicting that and saying, don't resist evil. He's saying, don't resist evil persons, persons who are doing evil. So what does Jesus mean then when he says, do not resist? So the Greek word that he uses, and thanks for letting me kind of point out some of this Greek stuff. It's really interesting. So the Greek word that's used here is antistemi, um, which is commonly translated oppose or resist. Right? That's why it's written here, do not resist the evil, or the one who is evil. Um, but does that mean when he says don't resist or don't stand up to evil at all? Does turning the other cheek mean that I just submit to abuse? Like I don't stand up, I don't oppose at all? Well, uh, you've heard it said uh, fight or flight, right? Um, fight means you get your fists up, you duke it out, you fight fire with fire. Flight means you kind of like accept your weakness and you run or you just you take it, you put up with it, you submit. So the lie of our world is that those are your two options. You fight or flight. And we can approach this, this Greek word antistemi with that same assumption. We can think that if I resist, it means fight. Fists up, fire with fire. If I do not resist, it means I do nothing. I run, I capitulate, I just, I let that evil like trump all over me. And so that common translation of resist or oppose, it's right, it's a good translation, but it's not comprehensive. Uh, Walter Wink is a biblical scholar and he explains some of the nuances here. He says, antistene means to resist violently. It means to revolt or rebel, to engage in armed insurrection. And so N.T. Wright translates this exact passage, do not resist the one who is evil, he adds that nuance and he translates it more helpfully as, but I say to you, do not use violence to resist evil. So when it comes to Satan or spiritual forces, like First Peter and Ephesians say, absolutely, we posture ourselves with the full armor of God. We're ready to oppose and resist with everything we have, with all the strength we have in the name of Christ. We resist. But when it comes to evil persons, Jesus is teaching that we don't need to fall into the false choice of fight or flight, resist or do not resist. Jesus is saying there's a third way. I would say Jesus is saying there's a gospel way. Now, I'm about to use a word that is culturally misrepresented. Give me a moment to explain it. I think that Jesus here is teaching gospel and Jesus is teaching pacifism. Now, we often understand the word pacifism through that false lens of fight or flight. Either I fight and I reject pacifism or I'm a pacifist and I don't fight at all. I don't resist at all. So we think it means passive-ism. That I'm being passive, I'm doing nothing. I have no stand against wrong or evil, but the root of pacifism is to pacify, right? To bring peace to a violent or a volatile situation. And I think this is Jesus's third way. This is what he embodied and lived out with the entirety of his life. So some interpretations use um, this passage and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount uh, to conclude that Jesus is teaching nonviolence. 
Now, um, I am more and more becoming convinced that that is much of what Jesus is teaching. Um, but I do 100% know he's teaching more than not violence. So regardless of kind of your conclusion on nonviolence, he's teaching far more than not violence. Uh, saying that like healthy or comprehensive pacifism is not violent is like saying healthy marriage is not adultery. There's a lot more to what pacifism, bringing peace means than just not violence. There's a lot more to what healthy marriage is than just not adultery. So um, with that, we can look back to the other teachings of Jesus, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, right? And the ninth verse of that is he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pacifiers, those who pacify violent or volatile situations. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God literally means resembling or imitating God, their father. And then he continues and he concludes the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this active peacemaking, resembling, imitating God the Father, this is what Jesus is teaching here. I think this is what he's getting at. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not fall into fight or flight resistance. So he gives us one command, but he gives us four examples of what that means. What it means to bring peace to a situation. Now, um, so that's what we're gonna do now. We're just gonna look at all four examples and what does Jesus mean? All four are wrapped up in this first century Jewish culture and language. And so we're gonna do our best to understand them. So the first example he gives is in verse 39. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But first example, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So uh, there is an obvious physical element here, right? There's physical assault. So this feels only like an example of a physical assault, right? But and that's there to a degree, but there's a lot more going on underneath the surface. This is actually a Jewish word picture of deep insult. And this insult is occurring within honor, shame culture. This is literally a culture where you like fight to the death or sue people over an insult or a misused word. Honor in this culture is deeply significant. And Jesus here specifies, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So um, can I have a volunteer? I've got a volunteer. You, sir. Yes, you. Come on up. Um, so Jeremy is going to help me out with this. So Jeremy, come on over here if you would. Thank you so much. So Jeremy, can you uh, show us which is your right cheek? That one. Could you display it to the crowd, please? Oh, you're doing great. So that is his right cheek. So that is the cheek that is being slapped. I asked Jeremy before this, I said, hey, would you help me out with this? Now, should I hit you or should you hit me? Jeremy very graciously said, 
why don't you hit me? And I said, great. <laughs> so um, that is Jeremy's right cheek. Now, in this first century Jewish context, my left hand would be considered unclean. So I would not use my left hand for much, but especially not for touching other people. So this hand is out of the equation and I desire to strike Jeremy. Can you point me one more time? Which one is your right cheek? Yes. Now, so if I want to hit that cheek, I need to do two things or a couple of things. I could very awkwardly like reach around and I could, but what's probably going on here is this is a word picture that if I wanna strike his right cheek with my right hand, I do this, right? And so, thank you. Um, even today, we understand like the meaning of that has, um, it's lasted. What is a backhanded slap, right? This, what does that action mean? In this culture that Jesus was speaking to, that is the way that you would strike an inferior. So an abusive master would strike their slave, an abusive husband would strike their wife, an abusive Roman would strike a Jew, an inferior race. So clearly, there's nothing right about that hierarchy. But this was the significance that Jesus was speaking to. This was the culture and how it was operating. And so, this act of dehumanization, this me above you, this is what Jesus is subverting. He's very clearly pointing out an act of dehumanization. And so Jesus says, rather than fight, which means like you swing back, put both your fists up, you escalate. He says, or instead of fight or, or flight, meaning you run away or you submit to the abuse, you accept the dehumanization, Jesus here is suggesting the unexpected. He's suggesting that when you are slapped and dehumanized, insulted with a backhand, he suggests that you refuse to accept the role of the inferior. And yet, you simultaneously refuse to respond with evil. He says you stand back up, you look that person in the eye, and you turn the other cheek. And what this is essentially is saying like, hit me square in the face as an equal. I'm not your inferior. You don't backhand me. If you wanna hit me, hit me like a man. It's a way of claiming dignity in a way that is nonviolent, responding without evil. Now, Jesus does not promise that this fixes the other person's evil. In fact, um, the Beatitudes nearly guarantee persecution they guarantee that you're gonna get it either way. It's, it's just naturally possible that in this situation, it's naturally possible that it may escalate regardless, even with a peacemaking response. But it's also possible that the person stops. They backhand you, you stand up, you look them, you say, it's possible they stop. It's possible that that window of peacemaking is exactly what's necessary to expose their violence. It's exactly what's necessary to create a space for change, to give them an opportunity, not to bow to them nor escalate with violence, but to create space for the gospel to ring. Jesus' second example is in the court of law. And this is verse 40. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So 
Um, this example, uh, just to kind of specify, there's two articles of clothing that are in this. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, um, let him have your cloak as well. So uh, tunic can also be translated like shirt. And so in this um, Jewish context, don't think like t-shirt. Uh, this was like a, a long robe, like an undergarment. So it'd be like a, a large shirt that would hang down low. And that was your primary article of clothing. But then over on top of that, you would wear a cloak, like a big robe. And so those were a, a man's like two primary articles of clothing. Now, What's um, very interesting about this culture was that overcloak was also used as like your sleeping garment. That would be your blanket at night. That would be your bedding. That's what would keep you warm, right? Fabric, clothing, all that was not nearly as accessible. So because your cloak, this important outer garment, um, was also your bedding, uh, there was laws within Exodus chapter 22 that says you cannot take a man's cloak, whether it's through a loan, whether it's because of a lawsuit, you can't take a man's cloak. That is literally like their life at that point. That's like what keeps them warm at night. And it's a humanitarian command. So in, in Jesus' context, a, a poor person would have one, maybe two shirts, and they would at most have like one cloak. That was what they have. And so in Jesus' example here, this is a poor person being taken to court by a, a creditor, or you can almost think like a loan shark is, is some of what's being described here. So this poor person is being sued for their last dime, literally the shirt off of their back, the last thing of value that they own. Now, legally, that poor person, their cloak, their sleeping overgarment is protected. It cannot be taken away from them within this court of law. But Jesus here is suggesting that as a third way. So rather than fighting, meaning you, you lawyer up or you slander that person in court or you, or you flight, you literally run away and avoid it or you just accept the abuse, Jesus suggests something that is peacemaking, something that is resistant. And he says, of your own will, give up your legal right to your cloak and throw it in. And this illustration literally leaves the poor man standing in the middle of a courtroom naked. I've been sued. You can have my tunic. And I throw in my cloak also. I'm literally standing in a courtroom nude. Now, in this example, it's not the poor person who is shamed through their exposure. Instead, it's the creditor, the one who has caused the shame, caused the nakedness, they're the ones who are exposed. They're the ones whose ruthless greed has been exposed in the nakedness of the poor man. So you can see again, Jesus rejects fight or flight and he offers a third way of creatively bringing peace, resisting. Then he has a third example here, which is verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, uh, the Greek word here that says forces you to go is, is a specific verb that specifically means a Roman soldier's practice of commandeering your time and labor. That was a very specific word being used here. So it's not just saying like forces you, like it's actually a Greek word that means like the soldier's commandeering of your time. That's exactly what it means. And this was a regular practice. Um, 
Uh, Rome, the way that they expanded their empire is they would take over foreign nations and they would occupy them with their military. And so uh, people, citizens of that nation that's been conquered were literally inferior, subjugated people. And so the Roman soldiers and the Roman citizens became elites within that society. And so they could literally command any of those subjugated people to drop what they were doing and carry that soldier's equipment. So I wanna pause because it's very easy for us to hear this and have it kind of bounce off of our hearts. We live in a society where like Americans are privileged and we, we kind of, we view like equality as in our, our literal constitution, both in like in writing and in our blood. But imagine this, this was the reality that Jesus was living in. The men and women that Jesus was teaching lived this out. That was their reality. You could be walking to work. You could be getting groceries. You could be taking your whole family to synagogue. You could be going over to your in-law's house for dinner. And out of nowhere, down the street, you could hear, you! Here, I'm tired, take this. That was the reality. You, come here. I don't care, no, shut up, grab my bag. That was the reality that Jesus was speaking to. This is no slight thing that Jesus is talking about peacemaking resistance. You have no choice, you have no argument. You can't convince them, hey, I'll be right back, right? It's no, drop what you're doing, grab my stuff. You literally would have no voice. Any form of resistance would be punished. This is the position of deep dehumanization that Jesus is speaking to, and he's subverting it. So even with this, right, this moment, you, come here, take this. Even within that, it was regulated, so it wasn't totally unfair, I guess. Um, that forced distance could be no more than 1,000 steps which is equivalent to, roughly equivalent to one mile, unless you're kind of like, um, but it was equivalent to one mile, which is why Jesus says, if anyone says, right, compels you to walk one mile. So um, within that, uh, Jesus again, defeats this like false trap, fight or flight, rather than literally fighting the person in the street and refusing to do it, or joining a, a group of, of rebel zealots and creating a military group that fights off the Romans rather than fighting and rather than flighting, meaning like I just give up or maybe I literally run away. I hear you and I take off. Rather than succumbing to that dehumanization, Jesus says, try a third way. He says, go another mile, bring peace to this situation. Now, even with this, when he says, go the second mile, what he's not doing is creating a new, a new regulation, right? The original regulation said, you do, okay, and 1,000, I'm done. He's not suggesting, and 2,000, I'm done. He's not just upping that ante and creating a new legalistic structure. But what he is doing is he's saying, have a new posture. Give up assumed rights. I've passed my 1,000. That was my right. He says, give that up and instead reclaim your dignity and your humanity. 
when your subhuman obligation of one mile is up, show them that you are made in the image of God by volunteering an extra distance. Expose the injustice of the system. But even better, more than just exposing the injustice, even better, talk to the person. You have two miles. I think what Jesus is teaching is don't let your resistance turn into seething nonviolence. He's saying let your resistance be peacemaking. Let your resistance preach the good news of God. And Jesus' fourth example is right here in verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So um, notice there's a stark difference between this example and all three that came before it. In the previous three, somebody was dehumanizing you. They were in a position of power and injustice and they were dehumanizing you and you resisted and subverted but responded in peace, bringing peace, creating opportunity for change. In this final one, Jesus makes this teaching comprehensive because he, he's showing that this third way, not fight nor flight, but this third way of peace making even extends to when you are in a position of power. Which makes me ask, how does a Christ follower treat those around them who are vulnerable and dehumanized? Jesus of Nazareth, this peacemaking king, he says, give. Give to the one who begs. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. When he says the one who would borrow, he's not talking about a business loan. In, in his culture, this meant the person who's borrowing money to feed themselves. The one who's on the doorstep of poverty and is asking, can I, can I just borrow this? I need food this week. Now, I do want to walk that back a touch because his command here, his instruction, um, it's not teaching like flippancy um, or like an irresponsible response to other people's demands. He's not encouraging that we enable addiction nor irresponsibility. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying just because someone demands it, you owe it. Um, but those, those things like enabling addiction and irresponsibility, those are the reasons that we most often hesitate to act in a giving way. And there's good reason behind that. But Jesus here will not let those concerns become loopholes. His teaching is pointing us to remember that even when we are in a position of power, our posture should not be one of judgment, one of self-protection, one of dehumanizing other. He's saying that in all of these, our, our posture, our position should be peacemaking creativity, peacemaking generosity. We can choose to engage in all of life, all situations with this creative third way that humanizes those around us that are made in God's image. So rather than letting fight or flight rule our lives, Jesus is reminding us the story of God is true. It's what you're living in. There's a third way. There's a way that you can creatively bring peace to otherwise violent or volatile situations. 
situations that are dehumanizing. Now, for you and I, hopefully, we will never be backhanded. Hopefully, unless you're at church and Trevor hits you. <laughs> hopefully, we will never be backhanded. Hopefully, we will never be sued in court for all that we own. Hopefully, we'll never be commandeered against our will. So where does Jesus' teaching then come home to our lives? There's this amazing thing that Jesus does here. He provides principles. Do not resist the one who is evil. Instead, do this, this, and this. And he gives four examples of what it means to creatively make peace, creatively humanize. And then he trusts us. He trusts us to follow him, to figure it out, to wrestle with injustice around us, to wrestle with the principles that he's given us, and he trusts us to think those things through. And the way that we work those out, I think in the most Christ-like, helpful way, is we remember that our obedience to this doesn't become before we abide in him. We actually pause and abide in him we rest in his presence. We remember the story of God and that changes our hearts. And then the response that is unexpected, this peacemaking begins to come out of us. But I do wanna give a quick moment, if I may, to how. What are some concretes that I, I can do if, if I am beginning to see the loveliness of this way of Jesus? How do I do this? So I have um, two categories of thought. The first one is we prepare, we prepare our heart posture. And all this means is it begins with we choose. We choose to want to respond differently. We choose to want to follow Jesus's teaching here because the reality is many of us hear it and kind of choose to leave it and live in the norms of our culture. So the first thing is we choose to come underneath Jesus's teaching. And the second thing is we rehearse the gospel this is not what justifies you. We rehearse the fact this doesn't make sense unless the king has come. And so we rehearse, the king has come. I've died to myself. He has literally died for me when I didn't deserve it. So I have new life in him. I live for him. And then we pray, not only for ourselves, but for those in front of us that do not deserve peace. We pray for them. We pray for those who insult us violently. We pray for those who accuse us unjustly, who take things unrighteously. We pray for them. And our own hearts begin to orient toward them. Now, the second thing of how do we prepare? We prepare our hearts, but we also just prepare practically. The reality is most of the situations we encounter, we know that they're gonna be frustrating. We know like when my wife gets mad, this is how it usually goes down. It usually goes down in fight or flight. I can predict the way that I respond to my children when they make me angry. I can predict the way that when my boss accuses me, this is how I respond. We can anticipate and just know what's gonna come. So we just consider what are those frustrating situations? And then we ask of them, step number two, we just ask like, what is a fight response in that situation that either I experience regularly or I anticipate experiencing? And then we think, what is a flight response in that situation? And then preemptively, we think, what is 
a third way peacemaking response? How do I humanize this person? Whether they're in a position of power over me or I'm in power over them. Because this is the gospel. This is the reason that we even want to do this. The reason we want to pray for those that don't deserve peace is because Jesus made peace for us. He brought peace to a world that was violently rejecting him. And the amazing thing is that Jesus, the, the examples he gives here, someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. If someone sues you and takes your robe, do this. If someone um, confiscates you and commandeers your time, do this. He literally lived them out in his life. Over the course of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John chapter 18 accounts Jesus literally being backhanded and he responds with peace. He doesn't roll over and just take it, but he responds with peace. Matthew 15 tells the story where Jesus's robes are literally stripped off of him and he stands naked in a crowd. And the amazing thing is in that moment, he is not the one who is shamed. The account in Mark exposes the evil of the men who are doing it to him. Matthew chapter 27, a Jewish man named Simon gets one of those moments. You, we're about to crucify a man. I need you to carry his cross. Get over here. It's literally the story of Jesus's journey to the cross. It includes that moment. And all throughout his life, Jesus gave. He gave, he gave, he gave. And even his final act of death, that was him giving. That was him saying, you didn't even beg me and I came and I gave. That is the life of Christ, the consistency of Christ. So that, as we end, I'm, I'm, that is the thing we hold on to. We rehearse, we rehearse, we rehearse. Not only so we do this, but so we can live with Christ, as Christ, for Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, this is a heavy teaching. It's a teaching that um, breaks the norms of our world. And in many ways, I can't even imagine following through with it. But Jesus, the story is that everything has changed. I know that. I know that personally. I think I've even seen that this week. I've seen you bring peace to volatile situations. You've enabled human beings this week around me to bring peace instead of fighting or running away. Father, we love you. Amen. Uh, now is our, our time for question and response. And this will be quick. It'll be about five minutes. Um, but this is an opportunity where like the, the fourth wall kind of comes down and we just get to talk as a group of people. So question and response doesn't mean like I have all the answers. What it means is we question the teaching. We, we respond to it. So um, if you'd like to do that, you can text or email questions at alloflife.church. It's up on the screen. Now, if you have a question, go ahead and do that now. It can take up to about a minute for that to like, for you to type it, go through the thing, get it to me. So go ahead. If you have a question, I'd love for you to um, put it in. But while we're waiting for that electronic process, is there anyone who has a, wants to raise a hand and just ask a, a question? Oh, we've actually got two. You guys are stellar. Okay. Um, Question is, I'm having a hard time translating this into our culture. Could you help with some examples that can help me visualize this in our culture? Yeah, that is a phenomenal question. 
So something that I would do is, Jesus gives examples and a principle. Um, and so if we take away some of the, the first century Jewish images and we look at what is occurring, um, it begins to be more translatable. So for example, it might not be someone backhanding you in an honor-shame culture, but what if someone calls you a terrible word? Like, what if someone bullies you at school? Right? What if someone is, whether it's at work, right? For whatever reason, maybe it's a drunk person at the bar. Someone's picking a fight with you. Have you ever or will you ever in your life experience degradation or insult? Will someone ever ask more of you than is fair? Will someone make expectations of your time, right? Commandeering your time. Will someone ever ask you to put yourself in a position of inferiority? Um, obviously with, with suit and this idea of like nakedness, I don't really know how that one would translate, um, but I would just say, consider like what's occurring, right? Someone who begs of you. Uh, we're being begged of all the time. And so I shouldn't say all the time, but I think our culture kind of uh, thinks that's normal. Um, the greatest thing I would say is consider the posture. Rather than trying to take the example and say, how does this one example translate to my life? I think, what is the posture that Jesus is saying? Is that I'm not here to defend myself. I'm here to bring peace. And I'm willing to put up with some things that are pretty hard in order to bring peace and express like my humanity and dignity. And I'm also willing to be generous with my time, with my resources, with my words, with my attention. It's a really great question though. What's the next one? Can you highlight extreme situations such as domestic violence or sexual assault? So there is um, extreme debate around nonviolence and the teachings of Jesus. Um, at a governmental level, Jesus never says governments should not enforce law. Governments should not enforce consequence. Uh, there's actually multiple places in scripture that say government is in place to do that. God has put government in place to enforce law, to make sure there's fair and equitable trial and consequence, and those things are good. But what Jesus is saying here is what about you in your specific life? How do you respond to people? Now, some people within the Anabaptist tradition, deep, deep nonviolent pacifists that say you never, you never engage in violence. Um, they will actually say things that are very extreme, for example, there's a, I was, in some of the research I was doing, I heard two stories that blew my mind. Um, one was a, a woman who lived within America, it was about 2017, and a man broke into her home and was about to engage in sexual assault, right? This is a little bit different because this is a stranger, right? So I understand there's some nuance there. But this woman literally said, before you do this, can I make you a cup of coffee? And they went downstairs and she made him a cup of coffee. And then he left. Um, another story as I was researching this was from Indonesia and there was a pastor and his family and there was a group of, of kind of violent rebels that broke into his home because he was a pastor. And they basically said like, we're gonna kill you. And he says, hang on. And he calls his family, literally gets them out of bed and says, like my family, like we're about to be with Jesus, rejoice. 
He uses the language of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice when you are persecuted. And then he says, but before you do that, let us like be generous to you. Let us throw you a feast. And so they made tea and got out food and they fed these rebels. And then they left. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Like it, that's not the right response to that situation. But that's like a very Jesus-y response. Now, it's very possible, and I know there are real life stories where someone has done a third way peacemaking thing and it happened anyways. I think Jesus is with them and with us. Now, as far as like practically, if you are in a position of domestic violence or sexual assault, no, I am not saying you put up with it. Right now, today, you reach out to myself, you reach out to Jared, you reach out to the police, and you announce it, and you get help. Those things are not right. This is by no means suggesting that you leave yourself in a vulnerable situation. It might mean you don't kill the guy or the person. It does mean that, I think. But it does not mean that you are unhuman, you're inferior, you should just put up with it. He's saying don't resort to fight. You gotta kill the person to make him stop. Don't resort to flight. You just take it. He's saying there's a third way. I'm with you. You're my son, my daughter. You have rights. But let's not resort with evil. Are there any more questions? Okay, that's my time. Um, if you do have other questions, uh, I'd love for, just like, come talk to me. Uh, you can also send them to questions at Olive Life. We'll follow up with that. Um, I also realize that my ability to answer some of those questions, uh, it's, it's just lacking. And so if you feel, feel like cheated or have more questions, I'd love to talk, but I also am willing to say, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm learning from Jesus in my preparation from this, and I'm wrestling with it. I'm wrestling with... Jesus, what do I do when someone, when someone does something unjust to me? What do I do? Would you pray with me? Um, while I pray, band, would you guys come up? We're gonna take communion. Uh, Father, Lord, help us to wrestle with this as a community. Um, I think in some ways, wrestling with this shows that your teaching is it's knocking on our hearts. If we don't ask hard questions, it means like it's not actually penetrating. Your teaching only makes sense if the whole world has changed. It will rub us wrong. It will challenge all of our cultural expectations. And yet you're a king who loves us, who brings peace to us. In absolute worst case scenario, we have died with you. Death has been defeated and all that is left is life in you. Father, we trust you. Amen. Um.